because you want to just scream out. That's not true. That is incorrect. There was one point where um, I was accused of illegally raising millions of dollars, which was not true. And the FEC actually said we require no corrective action from the Mia Love campaign. And still, it was out there, so they decided to run, run with it. We'll kick those tires and start that virtually fake fire. Folks, welcome back to I Went Camping With. And today we celebrate 1 Corinthians 13 and all things love as we welcome the incredibly historic, and I, I hate to say the word historic because she's too young uh, to be considered historic, but nonetheless she is, and she is here with us virtually, uh, Congresswoman uh, Mia Love is here, and I'm going to actually, hopefully, she'll allow me to refer to her as Mia, uh, yes. despite how amazing she is. And uh, I am so excited to talk with her about her new book, her journey. Oh, we might even get into a little politics. Scary, I know. But nonetheless, she is here with us today, and I'm so grateful. Uh, Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. This is already so much fun. So... Well, good. Yeah. We, we haven't even started yet. So that's, that's, that's great. I, uh, and may I refer to you as Mia for the rest of this interview? Please do. I've always said that many people have many names for me. <laughs> Mia is just fine. It's always worked great. Okay. And uh, actually, and also I should mention for our uh, younger listeners who may not be uh, aware of this, but uh, uh, Congresswoman Love has a historic election, several historic uh, elections, actually. And uh, she is the first uh, black Republican Congresswoman elected uh, to our government, which is amazing. And also the first... Uh, First and only. <laughs> that first, yeah, I guess we haven't really made any more uh, leaps that haven't made any more leaps there. And then also the first black congresswoman elected from the great state of Utah. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's obviously congratulations. Thank you. Amazing. Uh, that's uh, I, I, actually, I would love to ask you that. How does that just sit with you when you are making history like that? Is it just business as usual or is there a sense of, wow, like I there's greater forces at work here and I'm playing this, this role, uh, like, you know, that maybe there's a little divine guidance here. Um, what is it? I, as someone who is not historic, I would love to ask, what's it like to be historic? You know, there is, I've always thought that there is some divine guidance. I'm very religious. I'm, uh, I belong to the church of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I have taken God with me everywhere I go. Even um, when I had the RNC speech, which is actually in the book, I tried to find a place to pray because I knew that this was bigger than me. And I said, your words, not mine, your will, not mine, to send me out there to give your message, not my message. Every time I've had to make a major decision, I've always taken God with me. So yeah, I believe that each and every single one of us have gifts and talents, God-given gifts and talents that are to be used for the betterment of society. And it's our responsibility to find those, develop them, and use them to make our community, our families, our country a better place. Mm. Well spoken, and I should expect nothing less from uh, a politician. That was very good. I, uh, I, I have so in agreement with you, and I actually would love to go back because there's some humble roots here. Um, one, I didn't know this about you. You studied musical theater. I did, yes. Okay. Did. So, now, do you think, is it is it a given that 
to solve the sort of bipartisan crisis that we have in this country that do you think if our elected officials would engage in some musical theater numbers together, we could solve some of the divisiveness that we face in this nation? We would certainly have more fun doing it, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and maybe every if every policy was a part of that musical, it might it, it might you'd have to work together because you don't want to sound horrible. I don't know. Um, I've always had a good time and gotten really close to the people that I've done musicals with. So yeah, maybe maybe that would maybe you've just found an answer. Maybe we need to, yeah, we need to figure something. What's uh, so I have to ask, what was the gateway uh, drug for your musical theater? Was there one that hooked you and you got so interested in musical theater or one that sticks with you? I, when I was in high school, I auditioned for musical Barnum. Okay. And I got cast as a 101 year old lady which is really interesting. And I got to sing this song, Thank God I'm Old, and talks about what the kids have to deal with. And, and here I am, a high school student, talking about oh, all the things that the kids have to deal with, and thank goodness. And I I found my I found my singing voice there. And um, interesting, I had a gym teacher that said, you've got God-given pipes. You need to sing. You need to continue to do this. And then I did Once on this Island. And then I went on to do West Side Story, which I tried to introduce to my kids earlier. And then they had the movie come out and now they're like obsessed. So they liked it. They liked that. Are you talking about Spielberg's recent rendition of it? Yes. And they loved it. Yes. And okay. they loved it and they knew the songs because I, I played it around the house. They knew the songs. They felt like they were just kind of ahead of the curve. And well, well, there you go. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, when was actually, when was the last time you did? So you actually recently engaged in a little musical theater. This is not something relegated to your past, right? <laughs> you know, once in a while when I'm asked to do something for a good cause, of course. I mean, I try and dust off the pipes and, uh, because, you know, it, it's actually, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so you kind of, you have to kind of play around. One of the things that I've done with my kids, especially when I came home after being in Congress, that's one of, that's one of our bonding moments, making cupcakes and singing. We put on our karaoke and my two girls and my son, they have beautiful voices. And so I want them to continue to use it and reuse it. And that's one of the ways that we bond. Even now that I'm outside of Congress, sometimes we'll just turn on the TV, put on the karaoke machine, and we'll just sing and um and have a good time. And sometimes they'll say, mom, I need to hit this note. How do I do it? How do I do it? And I go in and try and ease them into it so they don't actually hurt their voice. Oh, wow. See, I think doing the dishes and cleaning the kitchen to your house would be a lot of fun after dinner. It sounds like a lot of <laughs> a lot of singing going on there. And dancing in the kitchen. Yes. <laughs> oh, man, that's fantastic. Uh, so I actually I would love to I know we don't have a ton of time today, but I would love to just get into a little bit of uh, politics. Um, I mm -hmm. was I was surprised and I'm um, that you actually you got it seems like you got started dealing with difficult constituents at 30,000 feet was actually uh, when you had to represent the interests of people on a large plane as you were a flight attendant. Mm -hmm. Did you I mean, as much as I'm half joking with this, do you did you learn anything from that about as far as dealing with difficult people? And do you view that as an actual any sort of stepping stone to being able to succeed in politics? Um, 
actually, yes. You deal with so many people. It's really interesting. At that time, I there were some people that felt like the laws didn't exist <laughs> at 10,000 feet or above, <laughs> that they could do whatever they wanted to and nobody was going to come after them. Sometimes some people would get get a little too inebriated they drink a little bit too much and and give us a hard time well you have to understand my my job at that time as a flight attendant it's not really it's not really a service job it's actually to you're there for emergencies you have to be able to evacuate a plane in 90 seconds 90 seconds how long it takes a plane to be completely engulfed in flames had 90 seconds. So that was the main. So when there were people that were inebriated and you had to cut them off, they really gave you a hard time. Um, I, you wouldn't believe what you had, what I had to deal with. Um, And so, yes, it actually did prepare me a little bit. Okay. I thought so. I thought individuals, they have their own little quirks and their own little, um, their own little belief system. And you have to let them know that this is what this is what it is in this arena. And but in Congress, you represent them and you also represent a constituency. So you have to kind of work within within that that sphere or that scope. Do you have a uh, anecdote or a crazy story uh, that comes to mind from your time as a flight attendant, either a harrowing experience or a particularly comically bad. Really? Okay. I'm, so. I'm, this, we're trying to get stuff we don't normally get <laughs> elsewhere. So I'm curious. Yes, I'm you're, curious. you're a- actually asking about things that I haven't really told very many. People. My kids, my husband knows, some of my close friends know. There but go. there was one point where um, this was early on when I was uh, a flight attendant, I hear this bell thing, which is calling a flight attendant. I go over and this guy, look, this is in first class. This man looks at me and he points to the seat next to him. And this woman was completely nude. (laughs) Completely. And I was just like, ma'am, where I'm trying to figure this out, trying to figure out how to handle it. So it doesn't, you want to always make sure that whatever situation you deal with stays in a tight little knotted ball because you don't want it getting out of control when you're up in the air. So I said, ma'am, where where's your seat? Because she wasn't there before. And then as I look uh, down the down the aisle, I see some clothing down the aisle and this other flight attendant picks up the clothing and we realize that it's first we're like, we take her, put her in the bathroom and say, can you please put these on and we'll find your way back to the seat. Uh, she put on the entire top and came out without a bottom. I said, nope, we've got to try this again. Let's mm-hmm. just do this again. We're going to get this right. And we found that her seat was a little bit further back and um, we put her back in her seat. We tried to be as sweet and as kind because it was obviously something going on. And we found out that she had just found her way out of um, an institution that she was in and was able to get on a plane. And Wow. So was she on our way to Boston at the time? Wow. Uh, Okay. Um, Well, you don't know what you're dealing with, right? If there's somebody that's willing to completely get naked, walk down an entire aisle and sit down next to a stranger, you don't know what you're dealing with. So you have to deal with it as calmly and as gently as possible. 
Wow. Well, there you go. Uh, see, I guess, yeah. no, this is so one, um, what, so this wasn't a protest. She wasn't from coach and staging a protest to get into first class. She had managed to get into the first class cabin because my understanding is in first class, you can do whatever you want. Apparently there are limits though. There are limits. We don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're okay with people being nude. Well, that's good. So in addition to make sure your tray tables and seats are in their upright and locked position, we would like all passengers to remain fully clothed until the <laughs> captain has turned on, turned off the clothing symbol, right? That's right. <laughs> oh, man, I could just see a captain doing all the little announcements like, uh, folks, if you just make sure to keep those tops on and bottoms, that would be great. <laughs> wow. Watch her carefully because it's she just wanted to get out of her seat and get out of her clothing. And I hope you did comp the gentleman a free beverage uh, or something uh, for making, since he, he was very nice about just paging. He was actually very nice about it. I didn't ask any questions. I just, you know, he just was in his own world. He was really patient. So, well, there you go. Here. Well, speaking of institutions, how about we go to uh, Congress then? <laughs> a okay. little, bit, a little okay. bit of a leap there. Uh, Mia, do you miss it? I miss. I miss the policy part of it. I miss actually when you were able to get things done. I miss getting things done. For instance, I authored the STOP Act, which came out of the admin um, administrative um, committee, the admin committee, which I wasn't on, but I was able to still pass a bill out of there, which is called the STOP Act. It's stop taxpayers' obligation to perpetrators of sexual harassment. There was a fund out there that would actually make sexual harassment cases for members of Congress go away. There were people that, that were accused of sexual harassment and they would pay the accuser off with this fund. Like an actual and government fund that we like tax dollars went to. Tax dollars went to. A hush fund essentially. Yes, because somebody made the case that when they were suing the member of Congress, they were actually suing governments and they wanted to. So it was like insurance, it was insurance to them essentially. It was crazy. But what it did was I said, well, where's the, where's the due process? Where's the, if somebody is accused of something and didn't say that they didn't do it, by paying somebody off, you eliminate due process. You eliminate any chance of that person proving that they did nothing wrong. I said, that's ridiculous. And there shouldn't be, taxpayers shouldn't be on the hook for these types of things. I was shocked that no one had done anything about it before. And so I took that on and I was able to pass it. I miss those things. I miss um, being part of the conversation when it comes to immigration. We need good immigration policy. I'm a daughter of parents who immigrated to this country who did nothing but contribute to this great, wonderful country that we live in called America. I miss being part of that conversation. I miss some of my friends. I miss my my big brother and mentor, Paul Ryan. Um, I, Cro I CrossFit miss, Paul, right? A CrossFit Paul um, and <laughs> Trey Gowdy, Tim Scott. I miss, I miss those people that were uh, um, interacting with them, getting, exchanging ideas for, with them. I miss that. I miss, I miss even some of the members from the CBC, which I talk about in the book, the Congressional Black Caucus. I was the only Republican there. And I miss some of the conversations and some of the cross policies that we can have, things that we agreed on, that we can work on together. I miss having that. Mm. So I actually, yeah, I would love, to, I would love to ask you about that. So what is it like 
being one of the only Republicans in that group. Do you do you get is there is there criticism for just being Republican or is it a respectful, hey, like we all approach is I, I forget where it was, but I read an interesting conversation that you had. Uh, I believe it was with a fellow uh, congressperson and they were and they were you guys were talking about your your childhood and development and seeing what you saw the role of government and how it affected lives yeah. and how this individual said that, you know, local government was not there and didn't do anything. In fact, oppressed. Yes. And then it was with you. Cedric Richmond, who was at the time, the chairman of the congressional black caucus. Okay. And he asked me a question on our way to the state of the union. He asked me a question. My husband was with, was walking the hall with me. Um, they have these, they have these tunnels that you can use instead of going outside. So we were walking the tunnel to the Capitol and he said, I just don't understand you and I get along really well. And on paper, I, I would think that we wouldn't even talk but we get along and we see a lot of the same thing. We see eye to eye on so many things. So why are you a Republican? I said, I'm not only came from a father, which government controlled completely everything. The Duvaliers were dictators. They controlled everything. You couldn't have a business without them having a piece of it. You couldn't go out and figure out how to make a life for yourself because the bureaucracies, are over and take over and control everything. And I said, and being a mayor and a city council member, I found that the most effective solutions, I could take care of my people in my city a lot easier on the local level than the state could do for us. And certainly federal government didn't doesn't even know that we're on the map. Federal government has no idea where Saratoga Springs, Utah is. But as a mayor and as a city council member, I could take care of those things. And I said, and federal government, it makes it a lot more difficult. I'm, I am in this party because I believe we have to do things at the most local level. I am, I believe people need to be bigger than a centralized government. We have to make sure we do not centralize power in Washington. And, he, and, I, and he's just like, okay, I guess I understand that, but I said, well, why are you a Democrat? And he said, well, you have to understand that where I come from, it was the local governments that kept us from being able to vote that, mm. would, you know, beat my ancestors, my friends um, with clubs and hose them down, throw them in jail whenever we would try and march for something for freedom for our individual freedoms that's written in the constitution. Well, I got that. I heard it loud and clear. And from that point, he and I had an understanding and we saw things from each other's perspective because you only know what you know. And when you realize that, by the way, all of your answers aren't the only answers that people have different experiences, different ways of thinking, that if you actually can see it from their point of view, and you start working together, You that is, I think, government at its best. When two people come together and talk about what they're for, mm. that's American democracy at its best. I love so that. So we started talking about the things that we were for. 
Yeah. I love that story because, you know, that is, he makes such a valid point that, you know, in your experience, the local government, the local church, the local nonprofits close to the ground can get things done. You, your family uh, escapes from this oppressive authoritarian regime where none of the liberties that we take for granted as Americans exist and vice versa. Here's a gentleman who comes from an area where that local government, it took the power of the federal government to to actually to bring some liberation and some and some freedom so it is it's interesting but that i love that you hint on that mutual understanding and actually when you when you all are in congress because as you know we watch from the news as outsiders and it's very easy to just pick on our congress people and just say everyone's a crook and everyone's doing something wrong but you know despite the divisiveness that we see is there any truth to the idea that despite the party differences there's actually a lot of unity in Congress as far as the goals are. We want to help people. We want to accomplish the same goal. It's just the routes are different that we want to take there. And there's a lot of friendships that transcend uh, the you know, the divide. Yeah. And, and there's the problem that we have. There is, there is that attitude and that sentiment. But the problem is the political side of both of the parties. The political sides. I'm talking about the DCCC and the NRCC, they're specifically there to try and paint the other person as a villain, as a liar. I mean, in my case, if they couldn't find anything, they made it up. It's another reason why I felt it was important for people to know who I am instead of remembering what they saw from those commercials that were put out there by a political party that just wanted people to dislike me so that so that they can gain power that is that is the biggest issue there are also these wedge issues we agree on but they try and use those issues to divide us mm. that's what people are seeing republicans don't want immigration that's not true uh democrats democrats don't like freedom that's not necessarily true but the you've got the political party their their only concern is make making sure they gain control or they gain power and the means the ends justify the means for some for some i just wanted to do what i was sent there to do represent people and i have to say that if i had listened to some people that told me, don't join the Congressional Black Caucus. They don't like you. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to hate it there. They're going to treat you poorly. Um, I wouldn't have made some of those friendships. Um, Marsha Fudge, who is director of HUD, I can walk into her office and give her some of my thoughts and some of my some of my ideas. If I didn't join the Congressional Black Caucus, if we did not build that friendship, I wouldn't be able to walk into her office today and talk mm-hmm. about some of these things. What's it uh, like, you know, one thing, a lot of a lot of young people, I imagine, who are interested in politics, they might rightfully look at the process and say, wow, I could better enact change by having private sector success and taking a, you know, a Koch brothers or a, um, um, I'm, I'm playing on the other name, um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm playing on the, the billionaire uh, hedge fund uh, who funds the- Bob Mercer? No, um, I have to edit this. Uh, uh, he's the one who puts in all the the funds the district attorneys races all across the uh, the the Hungarian guy, um, Soros. 
Uh, yes. Right. So is there, you know, a lot of young people might justifiably look and say, wow, I could try and make it in the private sector and fund politics and be engaged from the outside, persuade opinion. Why would I subject myself or my family to this process that even if I come out victorious, I will be so scathed. I will have, you know, a bare, a small majority that I, you know, take with me into uh, my practice, you know, when, what would you say to them? And then on top of that, what is it like to just have uh, these commercials run against you? What, how do you handle that mental fortitude required to just sit there and let people, I know this goes on both sides, right? People just make yeah. things up about you, but how do you sit there and watch that kind of stuff? And it's really it? difficult because you want to just scream out. That's not true. That is incorrect. There was one point where um, I was accused of illegally raising millions of dollars, which was not true. And the FEC actually said, we require no corrective action from the Mia Love campaign. And still it was out there. So they decided to run, run with it. None of it was true. And it takes, by the way, the FEC to come out and actually have a conclusive, um, a conclusive decision, it takes years after the campaign is over. And I've actually had that where they've said she's done actually absolutely nothing wrong. But I mean, that was a 2018 campaign. Yeah, thanks. Right? <laughs> and and they know this. They know that it takes years, but just the narrative is is hard. It's hard to watch it because especially especially me, I didn't I never even went close to the line. If there was something that was questionable, I stayed so far away from that, from the gray area. I stayed so far away from that because to me, I had children that were looking to me and honesty, integrity, and leading with character was the most important thing. Hmm. I mean, for somebody to try and tarnish that, it's devastating and it's very hard to watch. I don't miss that part at all. And unfortunately, it keeps good people from running for office. I can imagine a lot of sleepless nights and stress uh, when that, uh, and just, yeah, it's, I do wonder sometimes if certain people, if you have to be built a certain way to be able to withstand politics, uh, because it's just so knowing that you will have your name dragged through the mud on both sides. Like this is, mm -hmm. like you mentioned earlier, there's a, a necessity to win and the collateral damage is just, secondary no one think gives a thought to because that's one thing i i don't know how you know when i look at the congressional process like just the 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 fact that everyone has to beat each other up just to get there and then by the time you get in there you look at you know what you had to do to the other or what the the super PACs and the you know ancillary uh you know marketing efforts did to your opponents and it just it seems like a lot of folks i'm obviously hyperbolizing here but you know it seems like there's a lot of just soul selling that has to happen uh, or does happen i should say it doesn't have well, to be it's but really I guess interesting so. that you say that because i can say with a straight face and i can say to my children i can sleep at night and wake up and say to my children none of the lies came from me i needed to make sure that my integrity was intact I am actually, I am okay with everything that I've said and everything that I've done. No matter what I said about my opponents, I was truthful about everything that I said. I was um, honest in my dealings. Yeah, and, and so, 
I, there were times where, yeah, you know, the NRCC um, had their own, and there were super PACs out there, obviously. Uh, but it, I can say that I didn't have to sell my soul. I didn't. Hmm. Do you, uh, I, so it seems you have a, a very strong sense of ethics and grounded in um, sort of a mindset that transcends politics and what you think you're, you know, there's a lot of peace that seems to emanate from your, your position. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your faith journey. I know you mentioned this in the book, but uh, you start off, uh, your uh, family's Catholic and you're raised yes. Catholic, yes. and then you converted to the Church of Latter-day Saints. And I would love yeah. to, I that would make you the one person I know uh, that I can talk to that's gone through that journey. So I would love to hear a little bit more. Especially about because that. my mother's mother died when she was 12 years old. She was just a kid and she was sent to live with her uncle, um, who is who holds the highest position in the Catholic Church in Haiti. Wow. He has since passed. He was the Catholic bishop and was over all of Haiti, wow. um, over all of the priests in Haiti. So he, uh, my mom, our family was not just Catholic, but very strongly Catholic. Yes. So my mom just was pretty surprised. My sister became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints before I did. And I remember being in college looking for something that made sense. It didn't make any sense for me to kind of go and sit on a pew and, you know, repeat some of the things I needed to repeat. I wanted I felt at that time I wanted to find a way to have a closer relationship with God. And the Savior, I, I firmly believed in God and and Jesus Christ. I just wanted to find a way that I could connect a little bit more instead of again, like I said, kneeling at the pew and kind of going through the motions. My sister became a member of the church and a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and I remember there was one point where somebody stood up and said, "You have an obligation." men and they were talking to all of the young men to treat your wife and love your wife the same way that Jesus loves the church. I was like, I want to be that kind of why I want to, I want to be part of that. That's great. Those are great messages. Um, and I became a member of the church and my mom was just, she was a little distraught at first until she started meeting the people that were part of the, she started seeing a change in me also where I was doing a little bit more. I was, I was being a little bit more mindful. I would, I would tell my parents, Hey, we should probably pray before we eat. We should probably do this. Well, I never did that before. My mom actually said to me, you're a lot less selfish than you were. It was surprising. I mean, but at the time I thought the world, yeah, when you're that young, the world revolves around you and it's all about you. I was, I, I start. she started seeing a change in me and she, she didn't mind. She was like, I want to meet some of these people. Mm. And when I met and married my husband, my mom loved him and she didn't worry about him or his morals. She didn't worry about how he would treat me because she knew what he, what his belief was. Mm. He knew, she knew that he, he he had an obligation to love me the same way Jesus Christ loves the church. And at, still to this point, if I call and I said, Mom, Jason and I are having an argument about this. She's like, what did you do, Mia? What did you do? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do. I did read that uh, you were sort of on a... Uh, 
expedited track uh, to engagement and marriage uh, with your husband from when y'all went on your first <laughs> date. I noticed that it moved way faster than a bill through Congress. It did. It did. So, I can't. I, I, I'm trying to remember all of the things that I put in the book. <laughs> well, I'm just curious as someone who met someone and uh, one I find in many of those cases, people were very young uh, when they when they met their significant other. Um, mm -hmm. And and maybe it's because by the time you you know, you get older into your 30s or whatnot, you're a little more established and cautious and you've seen a thing or two, but there's a less idealism, uh, maybe a little less, you know, hopeless romantic. But I'm curious that uh, when you met, was it a love at first sight? What led to this uh, four month uh, journey uh, that got things going really so quickly? Really short, four months. Um, I wouldn't say that it was love at first sight. As a matter of fact, um, um, I tried to set my, my, my husband who was not my husband. Then I tried to set him up with my roommate. Oh, I just thought he was a great guy. I tried to set him up with my roommate. And while we were going on double dates, he and I just connected very quickly, just connected. And we just knew that we wanted to date. And within dating, when you decide, I made, I made a very quick decision I never stayed in relationships very, very long up until then. I just kind of got Well, bored. your last name wasn't love yet, right? So. It wasn't love yet. Yeah. So um, I knew very early on that this was, this was the one I was going to marry. I, I just knew it in my heart. I said, you know what? This is, this is my husband for sure. And um, he, we just started spending more time. When you make the decision in your mind and in your heart, now, being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we didn't believe in premarital sex. And when you get that close and you make that decision, it's almost like, well, you better get married quickly before you end up messing up. <laughs> so um, we made the decision in our minds and our hearts that we wanted to be, we wanted to be married. So we got married. Mia found love. Literally. I found so, love, yeah. And I found the last name Love and it fit. It worked. It all worked. There you go. Uh, and how long have you been married? I have been married for in December, it'll be 25 years. 25 years. Congratulations. That's really cool. You were young. You you were young when you were married. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, 25 years. But obviously, I mean, these are the results of it. We got married, have three amazing kids, and I would not have been able to become a member of Congress if my husband wasn't so supportive. And I mentioned this in the book, all in, all the time, all the time. Yeah. I imagine it takes a strong supporting partner to uh, endure and go through uh, mm -hmm. politics. I, I remember reading an anecdote where people were asking your husband why he quote, quote, lets you run. Uh -huh. um, and <laughs> I thought, oh man, no one lets Mia do anything. <laughs> so <laughs> that was, uh, that's, and you know, what was it like? I'm, I'm just curious too, uh, when you, uh, it's funny, I will say you said the federal government doesn't know where Saratoga Springs was. I didn't either until I looked it up prior to uh, this. So it is a small town. Uh, and, I, and I'm curious, uh, you know, you, you've had some, you've lived in small communities and, and you've had these, you know, when you're running a race and the results are a couple hundred votes apart, I mm -hmm. mean, how, what are those races just as nasty 
as the races at the there are actually federal. even more so because everyone knows so, like you're, you're talking to like the local baker you know and uh, movie theater and even stuff more so because all it takes is a couple of hundred votes to swing it one way or the other so there sometimes local government local races could be even more so i even talk about my mayoral race and what that was like that was difficult but it's hand-to-hand combat all i had to do was do the hard work knock on every door which i did i and and let p and just spoke to people mm. just listen to them about what their concerns are what their wants were um You've, you've let me pick your brain on some fun anecdotes, and I love doing this with politicians because even Ronald Reagan famously uh, had a gaffe about trees uh, and pollution. But I'm curious, uh, are there any uh, just comical political gaffes that you look back on? Because I, I actually I want to say to the politicians, much as I critique them, I, I used to say, how does like Mitt Romney go up on stage and forget what state he's in? And then you get older and you get through a busy season and you realize, like, what day is it? How old am I? Where am I? I totally see how you speak that much and you do that much work. Like, it's just hard to keep track of everything. So is there like a funny moment or something? I'm younger than those people that you're talking about. So, <laughs> I, I'm just saying that you, you speak that much and go to that many places and travel that much. I, I just get it. There's got to be a, there's, you know, it makes sense. I'm actually shocked people don't gaff more often, you know? Mm-hmm. But is there something I that stands out? I remember a specific time where... And and you have to be so incredibly careful and always speak the truth. I mean, it's just so you don't get yourself in that situation. I've never forgotten where I was. Um, Good. <laughs> and if I had forgotten a name, then I would excuse myself and say, I'm sorry, this is what it is. I mean, you just... You're just honest. You know, you try not to cover it up. I think that's where it gets worse is when people try and cover it up. Are the me and just is it when you're speaking and you know that there's this 24/7 and obviously the examples I cited earlier is more there's more heat on a presidential final than uh than a congressional race, but still the media is just covering you 20 and I I imagine you know, here we get to speak our minds and just have fun and have a dialogue. But when yeah. you get up on that podium, I mean, every word you say is scrutinized. Every word is scrutinized and can be can be twisted and told that you meant something else by it, right? So even when you say exactly what you mean to say and you and you believe in what you say, sometimes it can be twisted mm-hmm. and misconstrued. That's difficult. Everything you say will will be held against you. Will be <laughs> can and will be used against you in a court of public opinion, right? I'm not. I don't even say can. Will be definitely used against you. Oh man! Uh, all right. I want to uh, as we land our plane here. Uh, of course, at metaphor um, with our fully clothed passengers. Um, I want to. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about the book, um, but you know, obviously, the book is uh, a, a message. Uh, I want to actually ask you for a couple messages right now to our politics in general. Is there a generalized message that you have um, as far as your prescription, if there is such a thing, for both Republicans and Democrats, and just our broader political institution as a whole of things that you think we need to do if we're going to yeah. work better together? 
Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I start, I was thinking about this yesterday, last night, um, when I think the first question people ask, why did you write this? Well, I wrote it for several different reasons. One, so that people know who I am from me. Um, people know um, what some of the things I believed in, but it's all I believe in, but it's also a guide to running. And if you really want to run and lead, it's like, it, these are the things that you need to do. Get rid of the negative thoughts, get rid of the thoughts, uh, get rid of the notion from somebody else that you're not qualified enough to run. I got asked that question all the time. What qualifies you to run for Congress? Why do you think you're qualified to run? I, this is, it's a guide. You, you run, you figure out First of all, understand and know what the content of your character is. Figure out what you want to change for the betterment of society. What is your issue? What is the issue that you care most about? And it's not about your own ulterior motive. It's not just for you. Again, remember, use your gifts and talents for the betterment of society, for the betterment of some somebody else. There are many times in Congress where I made a policy decision that wasn't good for me personally, but was good for the American people and the people that I represent. So it's sometimes it's about putting yourself aside. Yeah, it's, it, it is definitely sacrifice. But if you lead by the content of your character, if you find your voice and you don't victimize other people, but you empower the American people, every decision I made was to empower the American people, give them more decision-making in their lives. I think those are the things that you need in order to be a good leader. Joining the Congressional Black Caucus, I always had this motto that leaders put themselves in uncomfortable situations and get themselves comfortable there. I actually got that from Peyton Manning. I <laughs> sat next to Peyton Manning once and I said, how, I mean, how did you with this neck injury, because he kind of just turned like this. I said, with this neck injury, you're still playing. How did you, how did you deal with the pressures there? It right there, knowing that this a group of linemen, their one job was to drill you into the ground. He said, if I was going to be a leader for my team, I needed to learn to get comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Get comfortable, then I can make better decisions. I got comfortable in an uncomfortable situation with the Congressional Black Caucus. I got comfortable in an uncomfortable situation in Congress. I went to places where I may not have been wanted, but I was needed. Hmm. And to strike a sort of ecumenical tone as we wrap up, you know, what's, what's Mia Love's message for Republicans and Democrats and our politicians as a whole? My, what's my, I would say, this is not about you. It's not about you. There are people who depend on you to make their lives better. I'm not just trying to, I'm not saying to make them, to make them rich or to do, but to allow them. Our job is to allow people to be the masters of their own success and success is not a bad thing. It's not a failure. One of the things I mentioned is my favorite quote. 
and I used it a lot, is failure is fertilizer for the future. Mm. You have to be bad in order to be good. You have to be able to go to the spots, go to places and make mistakes so that you learn from them and you get better. That's actually from my parents. My parents would say, our mistakes, our failures made us better. Mm. Mm. So, so it's not about you. Find a way to get rid of the politics and focus on the people. And you don't have to beat up one in order to make a difference in the future. You can work together to actually make a difference. Remember, American democracy is at its best when two people come together and they talk about what they're for. Is there on that note, is there some is there someone you want to give a shout out to that you might disagree with like royally on policy, but you enjoy their company or connect with well and admire their approach, even if you disagree strongly on the goals? Yeah, there are people. Um I I think look, Hakeem Jeffries, I'll take him over Nancy Pelosi. I think he's willing to actually have a conversation. He's not as, I mean, I worked with Hakeem at the Congressional Black Caucus. So um, I think that that was actually a, a good, a good change. It was a, um, it brought a little bit of life into um, some of the Democrat party. And I'm, and I think that there's hope now for, I think there's a little bit of hope for, um, for the administration, the De- the House Democrats and the House Republicans to work together, I so I I'll give a shout out to them. Also, again, uh, Marsha Fudge, who was so good to me, who actually protected me. She's she's like I said um, over at HUD now, but she actually did protect me. She. There are times she said, you don't need to vote for this. This is a messaging bill. This is this actually doesn't do anything for. Wow. And and um, I appreciate those people. Mm-hmm. And one thing I want to give a shout out to, and I hope that he continues to work on this. One of the things that the president said is that he is doing everything he can to make sure that he will do everything he can to make sure that um, the United States is leading in eradicating cancer. His son died of cancer. It's something that uh, plagues people. I mean, what a great thing. It's almost like for me, it's like United States being the first to land on the moon. Mm. That would make, that would actually make such a difference worldwide, having the United States lead on that. Mm. I think it's a worthy cause. I love it. It's a good, a good ecumenical tone there. Uh, Mia, can we get a, a close up of your book here? Since obviously I want to make sure we give, give all the love to Mia Love's book here. Qualified. All right. Available now. Came out January 23rd, right? Or, uh, it came out January 17th. Okay. January 17th. Okay. So get the book. Amazon, and then, you could do, it's on audible. You can act. And I actually do the, I actually do my own reading. So it's I love own. that. I love that. And, uh, and yeah. And who, who did you write this for? I wrote it for anyone who's thinking about leading or doesn't feel like they're qualified to do it. Hence the title qualified. I wrote it for anybody who cares about something and who wants to make a difference about it. So 
That's awesome. Well, folks, go out, get a copy of Qualified. Find out what you have unknowingly disqualified yourself from unnecessarily. So now you can get back in and help live out the talents and treasures that God has put on your heart. Thanks to Miss Love for guiding us to that path. Uh, Mia, it's been so much fun. Uh, we're going to land our plane here, but uh, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or a shout out or I, a, a question I, I, I would like me to ask you? I just wanted to say thank you to such great people that endorsed the book, Paul Ryan, Lee Zeldin, representative Lee Zeldin, um, uh, who ran for governor in New York and all, and I mean, he, people didn't think he had a chance and he almost got it. I mean, that's what, ha that's what happens when you decide to lead, when you make that choice. Um, people like Jake Tapper from CNN. So we have it all across the spectrum and Senator Tim Scott. I mean, I'm really proud. I'm just as proud of the people who endorse this book as I am of the book, because these are people who I think lead with character. Amen. I love it. A bipartisan coalition supporting, pushing forward of qualified. I love that. Um, and I'll sign us off here, but anything else you want to talk about or want me to ask you as far as a plug or something beforehand? I wish, I really hope, um, like I said, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Audible. There are several places really just, uh, it's, I think I've been, I've, I wrote it with all of my heart. I put, I poured my heart and soul into it and I didn't write it for me. I wrote it for yeah. you and I think you'll really enjoy it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's good. I just always at the end of the interview ask if there's someone, sometimes guests are like, oh, I, would you just ask me this? I have a great answer. If there's something that was on your mind, I'm happy to throw it in there. But if not, it's all good. We can wrap up. So all that. Well, folks, we have, uh, been camping with Mia Love and it's been so fun and I hope you all enjoyed it. Mia, thank you for joining us and for just getting out there and running and for enduring it. And even for people who disagree with you, I know they'll respect the fact that you got out there and uh, basically took a took a beating so that you could get stuff done that you believe in. And I just so applaud anyone who puts their hat in the arena and gets out there. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. This was fun. Absolutely. Well, for the next interview, we'll be diving deeper into more stories from 10,000 feet and musical theater. So tune in next time we go camping with Mia Love. So thanks so much, folks. We'll see you soon.